and uh, we are going to read from Isaiah chapter 56, and uh, it will be on the screen, but our screen is flicking again today, so that's why it'd be good to have your own version, and you can follow along. Chris, it's not your fault, though it does feel like when you're operating things like that. So Isaiah 56, first verse, uh, the first eight verses. This is what the Lord says. Maintain justice and do what is right. For my salvation is close at hand. And my righteousness will soon be revealed. Blessed is the one who does this. The person who holds it fast. Who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it. And keeps their hands from doing any evil. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say... The Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I'm only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house for prayer of prayer for all nations. The sovereign Lord declares, he who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. I hope there were some familiar bits in, uh, in that passage. If you um, kind of think about some of the resonance, some of the echoes that this passage sets up that, that appear and find fulfillment in the new, the gospel. I was at school when I came across this speech, and I didn't quite understand the impact of it. At Bible college, at theological seminary, as they, as they sometimes call it, uh, we had to look particularly at the, the speeches of Martin Luther King, Jr., sure you've heard of him, killed, uh, martyred in America in the, I think it was the 60, early 60s. In his famous speech, very shortly before he was assassinated, he wrote, well, he actually preached these words, and, and um, I, I do, I probably ought to have found the recording, uh, and we'd have heard it from him. Uh, he was a very clever uh, orator, very gifted communicator, and, and I can't do the, uh, the Southern American, Afro-Caribbean, <laughs> this is being recorded, I dare not <laughs> do such a thing, but you will hear him as I anglicize his words. He says, I say to you today, my friends, though, though, even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up 
live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, sons of former slaves and sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that today, one day, even at the state of, in the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering in the heat of injustice, sweltering in, with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream. I have a dream that one day in Alabama, with its vicious racists, with its governor having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification, one day right there in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day every valley will, shall be exalted and every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain and the crooked places will be made straight. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. This is our hope. And concludes, when we allow freedom to ring, when we let it ring from every city and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, great God Almighty, we are free at last. Amazing. I'm so glad he preached that. For Isaiah, in 500 years or so before the coming of the Christ, the Messiah, we've got to this point in the prophecy of Isaiah where he's, he's doing that, that envisaging, that looking forward, that seeing beyond, and that stating, drawing a, a marker in the sand of, of declaring it to be true. It shall come to pass. He doesn't say, I have a dream. But he is envisioning. He is seeing what the Lord will do. I'm... Uh, this is just a little aside. It's, uh, I'm reminded of that probably because uh, I'm going to be doing a wedding in, uh, in Georgia, or actually in Alabama next week. And um, I'm also uh, going, to, going to meet one of our friends who comes here, American Joe, as they call him. He's actually called Joe, not American Joe, but he is from America. And uh, he's, he said he's going to take me to um, Martin Luther King Jr.'s church next Sunday morning in Atlanta. I'll miss you. But it will be different. I didn't miss you this morning, actually, as I was away. But it'll be interesting in 50-odd years since that speech. Much, but not all, of, of that dream has begun. Walt Disney, that creator of many cartoons, uh, Apparently, there was the opening of his theme park in Florida, Disney World. But he didn't live to see it opening. He had died of lung cancer 
before. And the great day arrived when Disney World Florida opened, and a junior employee was overheard to say that it was very sad that Mr. Walt had not seen this day. He died before. One of the senior managers heard that and replied famously, didn't see it, didn't live to see it. Believe me, Walt Disney saw this theme park. It's the only reason why you and I are standing here. Isaiah sees and envisions and looks ahead and sees in the action of God in his day and age, but the greater coming of the greater covenant, the new covenant, fulfilled and established in and through Jesus, the Savior, the Messiah. From chapters 1 to 12, we, we remember those, the, the books of woe, woe, woe. Your boat? No. Woe, woe, woe. And from chapters 13, do you like that, didn't you, on the back row? Yeah, from chapters 13 to 35, the consequences of that judgment were being worked out. Then the sort of theme and the tone of, of Isaiah switches to one uh, to the servant songs and these themes of comfort in chapters 40 to 55. And now in view of those servant songs of the comfort that God will bring in the midst of judgment, the consequences of that comfort are now declared and described. This is what the Lord says. And the vision Isaiah put um, paints, portrays, is amazing. It was beyond the horizon of their hope. It was beyond the expectation of what they could see. I don't know if you heard some of the familiar bits and perhaps some of the, the less familiar bits. So the instructions that, that Isaiah is speaking is to tell the people to tell those who have faith and those who have an ear to hear that God is closer than we think. God is closer than we think. And spells out to those who would appear to be far away, who would appear to be marginalized on the edge, that actually a day will come when they too will be embraced and welcomed and be at the heart of things. Verse 1 of chapter 56. For my salvation is close at hand, and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Do you remember what Jesus said as in Mark's gospel particularly? This is kind of like reading, oh gosh, this particular gospel I have to remember now. But he, when Jesus started to preach, Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, he said this, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. It's at hand. The God draws near. The God enters in. The God uh, comes amongst us. In what way? Well, clearly in Jesus' coming. But, but Isaiah envisages and, por- uh, envisages and portrays and describes what this might look like. Now, looking back, we kind of lose a little bit of the the shock of it. But there are a number of people that Isaiah lists as saying, rather than being over the horizon and beyond because they shouldn't be seen, they're too ungodly. Keep them way, way back. 
He says those people are brought right into the center, right into the heart, right into the place of encounter with God, of belonging, of being a full part. So let's just uh, work our way through. Please do open your Bibles. You're all looking a bit sheepish now, aren't you? We uh, hear in verse 3 that no foreigner or alien, as other versions describe. When young people hear that, they think, oh yeah, there are aliens after all. Foreigners, outsiders, non-Jewish people. And then we also, in verse 3, these, uh, this category of person called a eunuch. Now, uh, what, I, know, I know Derek, you're like, what's that? A eunuch. You know what it is, yeah. You're kind of going, oh gosh, what's that? I often um, talk to some of the young people when doing baptismal preparation. I'll explain why in a moment about eunuchs. And I say, you know what a eunuch is? And, and it's really funny how versions of the Bible translate this. Because actually eunuch is the strict definition. And it's accurate. But other translations kind of uh, mask it because it's a little bit awkward to define it. Because a eunuch is someone who has no testicles. Just being blunt. Just being honest. It's someone who is unable to reproduce, someone who has been emasculated, somebody either by birth or quite often, or, or by accident, um, if there's a bad accident and crushing or things might happen. Gentlemen are all going, stop now, please. Or by, um, by people being taken prisoner. And be by in, in ancient world, people would be taken prison, particularly the educated and the um, and the young and the able. They would be taken prisoner, and they'd be carted off to a foreign land, and they would be castrated, and they would become eunuchs for two reasons. Mainly um, because they 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 would no longer be thinking, let's have find a wife and a family and have children and focus on that. That there is no opportunity for pro, uh, reproduction, procreation of family. Therefore, they'd focus all their attention into the work at hand. But also, uh, that they uh, would be working for the, the, the emperor or the, um, the kind of ruler, uh, Nebuchadnezzar and the like, and uh, they would have a harem. And you didn't want the harem being messed with by the officials that were hanging around. You get my drift. Good job we're all over 18 tonight, isn't it? We don't know for definite, but it's likely that our four friends in the book of Daniel were eunuchs. Not by choice, but actually that that was part of being prisoners of war, of serving in the empire of Babylon. Now, why does Isaiah bring up this slightly bizarre category? The foreigners and the eunuchs. Well, a lot of this is is to do with Further back in the law of Deuteronomy that was given in, in chapter 23, verses 1 to 14. We won't read the whole uh, bit, but I reference it in case you want to listen again and, and look that up or make a note. But there were a whole bunch of people that were excluded from being able to approach uh, both the temple and also held at the margins, if at all, because they were imperfect. And one of those categories was the eunuch. They weren't allowed to even set foot in the temple because they were um, 
they had been defiled, that they were uh, broken in, in this very particular way of not being fertile, of being emancipated, uh, of, of, of being emasculated, not emancipated, emasculated. I'm going to get that confused. Um, Now, why is that important? Think to the New Testament. There's a really, this is where the baptism thing comes in. There's a really key story that's got all sorts of things in chapter 8 of Acts. That Philip, one of the deacons, also happened to be an evangelist, was witnessing lots of things. And the, the Holy Spirit said, go out onto this road. Went out to the road. And as it happened, an Ethiopian, so a black person, person of African origin, a eunuch of the Queen of Ethiopia, I think it's Candice from, um, no, from memory, was traveling down the road reading the scroll of Isaiah. And he's a bit perplexed and Philip stops the chariot and they end up having this Bible study, parchment study, you know, Isaiah the prophet, in the chariot. And Philip explains to him about Jesus but the scripture is really clear that the Ethiopian is a eunuch. And the eunuch, after being described about Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior, the rescuer, says to Philip, look, here's water. Can I be baptized too? And Philip says, no. You've got no testicles. <laughs> Keep away. No, he doesn't say that. Everyone's saying, what Bible is Edward reading? <laughs> He says, of course, and they get down the water and he's baptized. And Philip disappears uh, in front of his eyes. And the Ethiopian continues as a baptized believer, a family member of the people of God. Isn't that amazing? Absolutely amazing. Derek, you're, you're looking like you want to ask a question. You just, okay. You're looking kind of like, <laughs> engage with this, aren't you? <laughs> so... What's really astonishing about that is that the Old Testament and Philip um, would have known that uh, something has taken place, something astonishingly profound between the Old Testament of these, of these regulations, these rules, these, these boundaries, these barriers which were put up to keep the people of God pure by saying only a very select few could actually draw close to God. Only a very handful of people could come to be, and essentially it was to do with purity. Now, don't stone me at this point, but it tended to be kind of like this cascading stale. So those people that we're describing, the eunuchs and the foreigners, they were just kept way, way, way beyond arm's length. You just are pagans and ungodly and unpure and keep at a distance. But in the Old Testament, there's this tiny little tributary to say, well, if you do want to come in God, to God, there's this kind of way that you can, you can convert and become Jewish. But you have to fulfill a very specific set of criteria. If you're a eunuch, no way. There's no way you can come into the presence of God. There's no way that you can come and worship. There is no place for you. Those Gentiles who may be God-fearers could come a little closer. If you look up in the study Bible or look up on the internet, you'll see that the temple had a big courtyard outside. Court of the Gentiles. They could come to the margins. And then there was the court of the women. Women could come a little bit further than the, the Gentiles. 
But that was it. Stop right there. Then there was the, the, the men were allowed to come, the Jewish men, and then a subset of the Jewish men, the priests, and then very occasionally, the high priest, the favored, chosen, special one once a year, could come into the temple and meet with God. But he had to be really, really prepared. He had to make sure his clothes were perfect, and he'd done a whole set of ceremonies beforehand because encountering the presence of God was a fearful Awesome thing. So that's the case in the old. Here's Isaiah and he's envisaging and saying, the eunuchs, the foreigners, the illegitimate children, the outsiders, those who are way on the boundary markets are entering in. Astonishing. The what Isaiah envisages is, I have a dream kind of language. He looks ahead and sees a day is coming because a savior is coming who goes out and meets all. And no wonder Philip, who'd grasped the scriptures, could meet the African eunuch in the service of a foreign empire in Ethiopia and say, you can belong to. You see, as Isaiah envisages in chapter 56, the eunuchs, not fertile, the illegitimate children, the too shameful, the foreigners were kept out because they were too sinful and godless. They were denied entry. That God's presence was out of bounds to them. But he sees chapter 56, verse 2. Sorry, verse 1. For my salvation is close at hand. Welcome. I want to read to you some some verses because that vision is still being worked out. That Jesus does welcome everybody and it's in his ministry and his, his mission. It's so often the outsiders, the marginalized and the, the excluded, the unclean, the lepers, the broken, the marred, the shamed, the judged. Who he has a special welcome for. But listen to, to what John sees in Revelation with the, the vision of Isaiah just still in our mind. Chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had, had passed away and there, were no, there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling is now with the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. I love this. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. 
And then just, I noticed this uh, when I was preparing for this sermon. Listen to the end of that chapter. We know that those quite familiar, but in 24, 25 of chapter 21, the nations, this is the light of God. um, I'll pick up verse 22. I did not see a temple in the city. What was the temple about? The temple's about where God dwelled and the people could go every so often and worship and, and offer sacrifices and so forth and know that God dwelt in the Holy of Holies. I did not see a temple in the city. Why? Because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. They are the presence of God, the ones we worship. They are with us. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. Listen to this, verse 24. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut. What are gates for? Keep people out. Isaiah is seeing this great day. Let no foreigner be excluded. Let no eunuch be excluded. I will bring them to my holy mountain. And give them joy in my house of prayer. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. What did Jesus, where is it in the story of Jesus that he quotes this passage? He says, don't you know my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? Where does that happen? In the temple. Just after the triumphal entry, entry in the Passion Week, just before his arrest and, and uh, death and resurrection. One of the places he goes is to the temple. And he goes in, and the first place that he gets to is this big courtyard that is the place for the Gentiles. But there aren't many Gentiles in this big space. It's a bit of a waste of space because the Gentiles don't come. Why would they? They're just on the edge. And so the temple authorities, and uh, in order to keep purity, have set up money changers, and they could change the regular currency into the temple currency because that was pure and honorable and holy. And of course, they charged a good commission rate on it because you've got to keep you know, money in the coffers for religious duties and, well, you know, all that. And so there's all those money changers. And Jesus, in his, uh, the journey and in the focus of coming to Jerusalem to accomplish all that he was come, had been born and lived and taught and established to do, comes into the court of the Gentiles and he turns the tables over and chases them all out and money and stuff scattered. He wasn't having a bad day. He wasn't a bit ticked off that day. He was making a prophetic statement which was, make space. Do not 
crowd out that what he was about to accomplish would mean that this vision that Isaiah has seen is now coming to pass, that the doors are open. The gates will no longer be shut. The outsiders are now welcome. He demonstrated and lived that and showed that in his ministry. And the gospel story is narrated again and again and again that the broken and the marginalized and the marred and the dispossessed and the hopeless and those who were kept at the side because they were the sinners. According to the religious, Jesus drew near. The kingdom of God is at hand. And demonstrably chasing out the changes of the money to say, this is the time where all nations can come. They're welcome. As a footnote, he did also say, I'm going to destroy this temple and it will be uh, raised to the ground. I'll raise it up in three days. Why? Because it's no longer needed. Because it's him. Because it's him. The foreigners can enter. They have access to the sacrifices previously um, restricted to the very select few who may offer them on behalf of others, but now foreigners can come, not to offer sacrifices, but to come and worship the Lamb. The eunuchs, those who have no human hope, whose uh, family tree is coming to an abrupt full stop, who thinks, what is my point? I do not have a legacy. They now are invited in to share in the building project and will be granted a far greater inheritance and prosperity than even the joy of children in the great and wonderful kingdom of God. The sinners can come and exchange their evil deeds and their foolish ways and embrace God's good, holy covenant. They can share in the presence of God. And it's not about working and toiling and trying harder. Remember, there's a repeated refrain about Sabbath, resting in faith, not working to belong, but resting in faith. Home, home and belonging for everyone who trusts in God. The house of prayer for all nations. I was talking to Ruth and Steve this morning, uh, Berryman. They were over in Upton because just Steve's brother is at Upton and we had lunch. And Ruth was part of my old church in Leicester. Uh, and you have known her since she was 12. Oh, she wasn't much taller then, uh, shorter then. I hope she's listening. She'll be told and listen to this. She did miss my sermon because she went to the wrong venue this morning. She was... Anyway, hi Ruth. Uh, she, so um, they were talking about my old church. My old church was in a council estate in Leicester. And when I was there, 96% of the estate was white, white working class. And I was there for eight years. And now my church, old church in, on Facebook, I see quite a lot. The, the, the community has changed and actually the congregation has changed wonderfully. And there's a much bigger proportion of people who are non-white. And I'm so, so thrilled about that. But Steve just made an offhand comment. He said, oh, it's really interesting. They were there for Easter. He said, it's, it's, it's great. There are all these people. They have a, a, an, you know, a praise and worship band. And, the, and it's, it's brought a whole new life and vigor to the church, having people from all sorts of different nationalities. He said, but it's really interesting, Ruth, he said, isn't it? 
all the white people sit on one side and all the non-whites sit on the other. And Ruth said, that's not entirely true, Steve. Stop exaggerating. I've not been yet. But I thought, isn't it interesting that the conditioning and teaching of our world still envisages, envisages our behavior. It still defines for us our normal. And this is where the gospel, this is where Isaiah, this is where focusing and reflecting on Jesus and imbibing of relearning, of seeing I have a dream about the extent and the scope and the breadth and the remarkable, radical nature of the kingdom of God has to undermine and destroy the old temple the old ways, tear it down of any barrier, of anything that would say, well, they can kind of come in, but they can't come in. It's our lot. We're the central ones. We're the favorites. And fail to see the dignity and the welcome and the embrace of Jesus to those who would say are not like us. We're all one in Christ Jesus, aren't we? Either male or female, slave or free, rich or poor. Jew or Gentile, we're all united around Christ Jesus. I know we live in a a rural context and and, uh, our demographics are different to inner cities. But it's not just about the color of our skin. It's about how we treat someone from a different socioeconomic class. It's our welcome of, of visitors from other nations. Of the stranger who comes in, the foreigner perhaps, or the visitor. There was someone who's joined our church in the last two years, and he made this observation. I think he'd allow me to say this. He came, he's, he's a married guy, but his, his, um, his wife isn't a Christian. So he, he started to come to the church on his own. And um, I'm, I'm really glad to, to say, normally, most of our visitors say, oh, the church is great, there's such a really nice welcome of people. Because that's what we work hard at, trying to spot. But that wasn't his initial experience. He said it was really interesting when he came with his wife occasionally. A lot more people went to talk to him. But as a single man, stand back. Now, I know there's reasons for that, and and it's a little bit more complicated than I'm making it out. One of the things about us as people who are welcomed in, who have come in through Jesus, who've experienced the vision and the grace... And the transforming power of Jesus is to keep living this daily. And to be a church that models what it looks like to belong. And to recognize that the gates are open and people are invited and can come and belong. And they may not have our cultural ways and our cultural norms. And it may be different but hallelujah. It means a big challenge for churches. Do we, you know, in places, do they have uh, a Chinese congregation and a Portuguese congregation and a Southern Indian congregation in, and meeting in one building? How do you build family? But family, we, we must build. We must recognize that there are seekers from other nationalities and other backgrounds and even other streets around us. 
who may pluck up enough courage and climb the steps and come on in and think, where do I sit? Because the front row is really awkward, but we've all left it for them. (laughs) Or like that awful, awful experience of Gandhi in Britain just after the, I think it was just after the Second World War, I think in Cambridge, going up the steps to an Anglican church and the church warden saying, we don't have your sort here. I thought, well, that's Christianity. Then you can keep it. It's not Christianity. It's not just about the service, but it's our na- about our neighborliness. It's about our welcome, our engagement, our willingness to step over our cultural taboos and barriers and step out with the hands and the feet and the voice of our Savior Jesus when all else would say they're not like us. Great, because in Jesus they can be not like us, but part of this one big, great, wonderful family. I'm going to just make my own comment and not preach it, if that makes sense. This is why our day and age in nationalism, I don't think, sits well with Christian faith. Discuss. I'm not going to say, thus saith the Lord on that. But I think we have to have a careful debate and a sitting with Scripture and actually saying, what does kingdom look like? How does being... A follower of Jesus first, not English, British, European. What does being a follower of Jesus first and fully look like in this day and age? Because he comes first. Amen. Amen. Some people have got, well, anyway, I'm going to, we're going to worship together and just, you, if you don't agree with me, sit with the scriptures. I'm not saying that means that you won't, will then agree with me, but talk to the Lord, search the scriptures. Take time with Jesus. Together we can do that. But I pray, Jesus, let's just pray. Jesus, as I spoke about, would you, would you tear down in us the things that hold you at bay the heart set and the mindset and would you build in us kingdom things we confess we're prejudiced We work with stereotypes. Maybe there's racism. Maybe there's sexism. Maybe there's classism. Maybe there's those things. Forgive us, Lord. You love us as we are. And you love us enough to change us. Have your way here. Let us be in step in this day in what it means to live in the light of Isaiah's vision of Jesus who fulfills it and is restructuring and remaking 
such that one day the very presence of God will come down. There'll be a new earth, a new heavens, a new city, and God will be in the midst of us, tangibly, visibly. He will wipe away every tear, every tear of of harsh words, every tear of alienation, every tear where we've been held back and on the edge and not welcome because we're different, because we don't fit. Every expression of death, of sin, he will wipe away the tears off. Be our vision, Lord. Keep marking us as your people. In 2019 and however long we have the privilege of witnessing for you here. In Jesus' name, amen.